With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. And then suddenly everything started to move. Everything started to move so fast you couldn't walk. You needed to be in knee down or lay down, grabbing yourself. The lamps start to fall, books start to fall. All the food in the counters fall. The sound of glass bottles crashing in the floor. I saw some cracks also in the wall. And this normally is not that long. This took two minutes, which you said, no, it's not that much. It's a lot. Two minutes is a lot just to be moving yourself and not knowing what's going to happen. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And that was Sebastian Vidal describing the 2010 earthquake that shook up not just Chile, but his life. Sebastian's story concludes our three-part series on Puerto Rico, one focused on how opportunity and growth can stem from destruction. In the aftermath of the Chilean earthquake, Sebastian founded Parallel 18, a startup accelerator based in Puerto Rico that provides international support for entrepreneurs. Sebastian saw an opportunity to help devastated communities make a global impact, and he took it. But that entrepreneurial spirit stemmed from a strong foundation one built on the values of hard work and discipline instilled in him by his father. You grew up in Chile. What were some of your first memories? Chile is like a, it's, it's a, it's a very long piece of land. So I think that makes Chile pretty diverse. You can be, you know, surfing and then you can be in snow <laughs> at the same day. My parents moved there when they got married. So we, the three of us, were two brothers and one sister. We were born in Concepcion. And, and it was a very like peaceful, I would say, because it, it was a small city. Both of my parents were pretty hard workers. They both very different, right? So my dad is very strict. He wanted for us to be honest, to be humble, but to, to be very, very hard workers. Mm. Um, so structure was something that we have to follow. Like we also have to eat lunch at the same time every day. So, so that, I think that structure part comes from my dad and my mom is the dreamer. My mom is like the one that is, you know, gave me the hopes that I could do whatever I want and give me the more creative side and always empowering me to do different stuff. In South America, you can, you can, you can see whole towns with floors of dirt, right? And no floors uh, and no seatings. So growing up, I saw that difference. It's like you can drive around and see huge slums of poverty. And it was kind of part of what what you experienced. We were very aware of that disparity. Did those two communities mix? They don't mix mm. at all, not even in school. So they never cross each other. And that's probably the biggest criticism of Chile at the moment. In my case, I, I, was, I live in an, a small community. 
where you have blue colors and 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 you have management and everything so all the kids work together so i had i had that chance but i realized that some kids didn't have all the the things that we had for example often privilege blinds us to the fact that our baseline is higher than others but even at such a young age sebastian understood he was better off than most Growing up in a middle-class family surrounded by extreme poverty, Sebastian developed a keen sense of social awareness. While Sebastian thought that his father's strict lunch rules were horrible, he realized that there are other children that are worse off, that didn't have any lunch to eat. And those children weren't theoretical. He saw them. He saw them in the streets and was observant of the problems within his community. And he was empathetic. But despite his empathy for others, he wasn't extended the same courtesy in school. So I went to I went to a French school. It's not like a French language school. It was pretty big. It's one of the biggest in 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 the area. It was pretty diverse as well. I think what marks me about school is like everything, and it goes back to my my things in my family as well. It's like, it's like everything was really structured. It's like there was a bus that picked us up at 7.30 and then we came back at 2, we had lunch and we do this and we do that. It was pretty, pretty structured, but it was a happy, it was, it was very happy. I was, I was never like a shy kid in school. Mm. I was very outgoing, social and happy. I was, I was kind of but a... you also mentioned that you had ADHD. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how did that have an impact on your life growing up? And I guess when was it considered enough of a problem to diagnose officially? What we know as ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, it was all about little boys who couldn't sit still, couldn't shut up, or were driving everybody nuts. It was just behavior problems. I really had a hard time for like probably two years, like between 10 and 12. Nobody knew what to do. Most of my discussions with my dad, because his, she, he was super structured and I was the opposite. I remember my parents telling me, like, stay put, stay <laughs> quiet, stay calm. I had really, really hard time to, to concentrate and, and I was spending more time outside the room than inside the, the classroom. So it was a lot of pushing to accomplish results or pushing me to do things that I couldn't do mm. naturally. In a structured environments, unfortunately to my dad, you're like, we're very structured. I really suck at it. But outside that, I was social. I was doing this stuff and the other. And I, I was, I was trying to get involved in every single thing that I get my hands to. What were some of those things? I did piano lessons, guitar lessons, saxophone lessons. I, I studied saxophone like three years. When I was 15, I did soccer in school. I did rugby, taekwondo, and also tennis. So yeah. play, I played tennis for like 15 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. ADHD can be debilitating in certain environments. And in many ways, that was true for Sebastian. The kid couldn't sit still for longer than 15 minutes. But I think Sebastian's ADHD had an upside. It pushed him to explore, to find diverse hobbies that he enjoyed. And to this day, he has hobbies like tennis that were products of a hyper-driven mind and still have importance in his life. Often people allow their disabilities to inhibit them, but Sebastian learned to harness ADHD towards productive outlets. That channeling certainly takes discipline and grit. And luckily, those were two traits instilled in him by his father. 
but perhaps most importantly, Sebastian gave himself room to be curious and creative, two attributes that would serve him well as he continued to challenge himself. You know, I, I was like 17, 16, probably years old. And even though I was doing a lot of things, part of my personality or my character is that I, I really like to go against what is said to be <laughs> meant to me. If you are if you have a DHT, you need to do this and this and this, and maybe you should choose an easier path so you can be better with the world and with yourself. And, and that didn't, I didn't like that. At 16 years old, I decided to go deep into mathematics and physics. I have always wanted to prove myself and challenge myself. So I took that path and two things I realized after going deep in math and physics. First, I was not good at it. I was at the bottom of the ranking of my, my class, but I never failed. So it was like, okay, I know I can do this, but I don't want to be like a very strict engineer or, or going deep into math for my future. I want to take that learnings and I know I can do math, but I want to do something different. So business was an, an alternative. Sebastian defies labels. He refuses to conform to the social expectations forced upon him. His rebellious nature is a manifestation of his deep perseverance, his affinity for challenge. Hard choices make an easy life, and easy choices make a hard life. In other words, it's perseverance in the face of life's challenges that make us feel fulfilled, not vegging in front of the TV. Sebastian compounds this perspective by a pure pursuit of improvement, of garnering skill, not for recognition, but because he just wants to do it, because he wants to get better. He pursues his interests, even if he's not particularly gifted at that interest. And that next interest would be business. I really enjoyed my time in school. I enjoy businesses. I, I like it, the, the teachers and, and my classmates. But I, real, I quickly realized that there was like a pattern that everyone was following. I wanted to be independent from my family, from the resources that they gave me, like from having every basic need that I have. And how does it feel to go and have it to buy bread and buy my food and pay yeah. my rent? So that's why I left. That's why I left. So I went to New Zealand at that time. There was a visa that was given to Chileans by the government of New Zealand. Everyone saw that visa as a tourism, but at the end of the day, it was to do the works that New Zealanders didn't want to do. My first work was a salesman selling subscriptions for World Vision. You know, I hated it, but it was funny because like <laughs> my mentor at that time, like he actually taught me like a lot of amazing things. You know, like how many doors you need to knock for to get a deal. How important it is to to have a pitch at the beginning that is not long, but is not short. How to keep you know people attention for one or two minutes. Managing of objections. Those things you use and I use today. Did that for three months. Then I <laughs> then for two months I do something like they call pruning vineyards. Why did you go Leaves from and- salesman to? agriculture <laughs> yeah basically i didn't have money so but what happened it was like I, I need to find something else and easier with easier and fast catch and that was agriculture you can do different types of jobs there but pruning was a, was one that i liked because it was kind of it depends on how fast you can go 
But after the second week, my hands were like, <laughs> I couldn't move my hands. So it was like, yeah, that is great, but I, I don't know if I can do it for any longer. So I spent like two months there. I did a lot of an, enough money to stop and think about what what do I wanted to do. So I said, you know, like I still have a lot of a lot of things to live and experience. So I want to move and I want to see more culture and more experience. So that I decided to save a lot of money and I traveled for six months. I did the standard thing at that time. There were a lot of backpackers that were doing like Southeast Asia and I did that. I spent three months in Thailand and then I moved to Middle East. I spent a month and a half in Middle East and then I spent like a month in Europe. Do you think you found what you were hoping to find when you embarked on that travel? Yeah, for sure. I realized that culture, engagement, openness, mm-hmm. and discovering, experimenting was going to be part of my life, my entire life. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I wouldn't leave that. I know what my mind wants to do, but that doesn't mean that physically I need to be moving all the time, right. all around. Just like mentally, you need yeah. to be stimulating yourself. Stimulating myself, and that's what I decided to do. Sebastian is nothing if not curious. Bouncing between countries and hobbies sounds exhausting, but for Sebastian, it was a means of self-discovery. On his trip, he realized he wasn't built for pruning and that he hated door-to-door sales, but at the same time, he realized he loved cultural engagement and social interaction. He had this unique ability to isolate what he loved and move towards those things. Growing up in Chile in a household built on rules and discipline, Sebastian had little room to explore, to think for himself. Traveling to a faraway place showed him the possibilities that lie beyond his country's borders. But ironically, he didn't have to travel very far to make an international impact. How did you find yourself at a winery in Chile? (laughs) What were the steps that that got uh, you back there? So what I wanted was an international global work. At that time, most of the global works in Chile were related to exporting. Chile is a big exporter. Kind of a cool exporting that could engage with other cultures and other countries was wine. Rio Nidian ice, red, white, and rosé. What a nice way to break the ice. It was booming at that time and everything. So I tried to see if I could get a work there. And I uh, worked in this small boutique French winery of a guy that was super crazy called Dominique Mazanet. <laughs> Why was he crazy? Uh, he was like, he, he built a winery in the middle of nowhere. And he, he had like this vision of building an hotel when there's no... <laughs> relation between winery and hotel that is now is pretty common but at, back then it was not not common at all and it was a french winery in a chilean winery territory which is like they're not competitors i'll say but yeah at the same time chilean wine competes with french yeah. with portuguese wine and everything it was like no i want to do this and he threw these amazing parties and he was very noble it was like a noble thing right but mm. like he wanna he wanted luxury parties and invite people to the winery and use the wine as an excuse and then it was bought by a Portuguese company called Finca Fletchman, and they call it Los Baldos. And, and I was the export manager of the Latin American market and Asian market. 
I, I really enjoyed that job in the sense that it was great to work at a farm and, you know, wake up and go and visit the vines and and then work for a little bit and then have a glass of wine and mm. you know like it was it was it was a nice work and also helped me a lot to understand how to sell how to sell to other cultures it's different to interact with another culture in a tourist environment than actually trying to sell something yeah. to someone I, I remember that time i worked with a japanese distributor and the guy only received faxes <laughs> so i needed to fax orders he texted me back through faxes and it was so painful and yeah that's that's how it started i didn't stick there because my boss was horrible mm. that was my first experience with a boss and it was the most horrible experience that you can find it was it was bad why i remember a lot of the looking down on on people like not only me like my peers so every monday morning we were like what he's gonna say to each one of us and I, I hated that. What I remember is when I quit, I told him everything. So I told him everything. I told him, you know, like, I, I think you're this and this and this, and you're, you're doing damage to this organization. And, and I was pretty young. I was pretty scared. But I, I, for some reason, I told him everything. And he told me, you know, like, you're never going to be successful in sales. <laughs> so when I did that in my next job, I was in charge of a 60-people sales team. Oh, wait, what? Nothing motivates Sebastian more than being told he can't do something. From opting to take on math and physics to uprooting his life and moving to New Zealand, Sebastian has always had a bit of a rebellious streak. And I think that desire to rise to the challenge, to have resilience in the face of doubt, has allowed Sebastian to thrive. And his boss's demeaning words only sparked determination in Sebastian, encouraging him to embrace the world of sales. So I had assigned a group of sales, uh, men's and women's, mm. of like 60. So my job there was not necessarily sales, even though I did some sales. It was more motivate those 60 people. Mm. But it was an amazing, amazing work. I enjoyed that work because I met a lot of people that were not necessarily in my Circles. social. Yeah. And I met, you know, single moms that are saleswomen because they didn't, they couldn't go to school. Mm. And there was this lady who was a widow called Victoria. But when she started, of course, she was, she was super stressed because she wanted to, she needed to make money. She had like a couple of kids and first month didn't make any any money and i was doing that so we had a conversation about that how to find self-motivation when you feel when you feel down and when you feel and she actually found it because of she was a widow and she needed to took that as a the energy that she needed to put into her work she changed the strategy to something more like calling and knowing more about the people and not caring about the sales mm. and second month zero third month uh she was salesman of the month and i spent with her probably a year and she was always top five salesman hmm. making tons of money and also making way more money than i <laughs> was making at that time and and i was so i i felt so fortunate to meet those type of people and opens my mind a little bit you know it's funny because i never i never saw myself as a, as a motivator I noticed that I was really good with people. What, what I think is that I, I can really put 
myself in the shoes of, of others. I have a lot of awareness on that on that topic, and and that makes me realize how important that is, and how a good leader it's made out of that as well. Leadership is a curious thing. And Sebastian went above and beyond his call of duty to navigate his team through this cutthroat industry. But I was thinking to myself, what actually makes Sebastian such a great leader? And I could hear it in the words he uses. It's the authentic care he has for his employees. They aren't numbers, but they are people with wants, desires, struggles, and goals. Sebastian didn't want leadership to be about barking orders and expecting people to fall in line. He had seen it play out at his previous job, and it was ineffective. To him, leadership was about recognizing and maximizing someone's potential. What we saw from Sebastian was that he empathized with his employees and encouraged them to succeed. That's leadership. But the dust around him did not remain settled for long, as the ground literally shook beneath him. It was pretty standard. It was like me going to the cells, working with my team, uh, doing things well, getting attention from my supervisors, and see if I get promoted. I was I was with some friends, uh, chilling, and uh. we start hearing the f- first of first of all was like a loud noise. But I remember this loud, loud sound, uh, and then suddenly everything started to move. Uh, but everything started to move so fast you couldn't walk. I remember the lamps start to fall. Uh, books start to fall. All the food in the counters fall. The sound of glass bottles crashing in the floor. You grabbing yourself like really, really strong. It's like you couldn't, you couldn't stand. You needed to be knee, knee down or lay down, grabbing yourself. And this normally is not that long. This took two minutes, which you said, no, it's not that much. It's a lot. In two minutes is a lot just to be moving yourself and not knowing what's going to happen. It was one of the strongest earthquakes ever measured. And security cameras captured its 90 terrifying seconds. Um, what were you thinking when you were seeing all this? I, I was, I, all of us were really uh, shocked. Like, we didn't know what to think. Like, we quickly realized that this was huge. Uh, I remember being knee down and just standing up as soon as it happens, calling my parents, didn't answer. And then I took my car. You know, you can see streets that were completely cracked. Um, cars on top of another, uh, ceilings in the floor. Like, it was, it was crazy. It was super, super crazy. Chileans are kind of, Chileans are kind of, Cockroach. It's like they 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 don't mind. You can see videos uh, where the earthquakes are happening, and the guy keeps reading the news, you know, with all the lamps and everything moving. And so they kind of a cockroach. So I realized that there was a, there was kind of empty, but there's still a lot of people going to work. We'll be right back after this break. So Adrian's been having a little problem with his car recently. Yeah, so like Sam, the stereo of my car just keeps playing our amazing Jim Quick episode over and over and over again on repeat. I enjoy it, but I just want to listen to our newest founder wisdom. We realized we had to get this fixed immediately, so we called up some mechanics and asked, hey, can you fix this? 
Hey, uh, my car has been bugging out on me lately. Uh, do you guys fix stereos? Stereo? No, we don't fix stereo. Oh, it, uh, it keeps like playing this like entrepreneurial podcast over and over again. They give like this intimate deep look into founders' triumphs and failures, and like it has like music and soundscapes. Yeah, but I don't know nothing about stereo. We don't want to enter. Oh, you're not involved in stereos. Well, honestly, like I actually kind of like hearing it again, and again. Maybe I don't need to get it fixed. <laughs> If you want to check out a cool podcast, I mean, the one that's been playing over and over in my car uh, is pretty good. It's called Finding Founders. You should check it out. (laughs) I think he's going to listen to it. I guess we'll see. (laughs) So don't forget to get your oil checked and make sure you listen to Finding Founders, share with a friend and rate five stars. Now back to the podcast. Sebastian's care and respect for his people shines through as he recalls the stress that pervaded in the hours and days following the earthquake. But we also hear a slight tinge of amusement in his voice. He says the Chilean people are like cockroaches. The tone of the statement reflects the attitude of the Chilean people, caring and relaxed with a superbug level resilience. These are traits that enable an effective earthquake recovery and response. To put all of this in perspective, this earthquake in Chile was the sixth largest in history, coming in at a whopping 8.8 on the Richter scale. It ended up costing the Chilean economy between 15 and $30 billion. But those are the financial ramifications on a macro level, and I'd like to delve into the personal. For some, disaster brings only suffering. For others, it's a crucible through which they can become their best selves. Sebastian epitomizes the latter, and he let the earthquake shake him out of his routine into a sense of greater purpose. So when his country needed him most, Sebastian stepped up. Right after the earthquake, there was two things that happened. And one, it wasn't immediately executed, and the other one it was. The first one is that I thought like a like a deep willingness to help mm. uh, and to be part of a rebuild mm. movement. At that time, I didn't do much about that. I just felt it. But at the other si- at the other side, I thought you know I needed to do something different with my work, and that that's the point when I start to think about doing something different, doing something on my own and having more freedom. So I had like that introspection um, right after the, the earthquake. I think that after the earthquake, there was a lot of, a lot of people in Chile that were trying to do things differently and they yeah. were trying to innovate and creating new solutions. And that, I think that sparks a different mindset. It's human nature to crave comfort and stability when we encounter unwelcome roadblocks. But often it's hardship that most effectively sets our priorities for us. And that's what the earthquake seemed to do for Sebastian. It had shaken the debris out of his line of sight and granted him clarity as to what he wanted out of his life. His first business venture with a friend after the earthquake eventually failed, but it gave Sebastian hope and confidence that he could strengthen Chile's social framework. 
But the best part was that this will to create change was shared by many across the country. Because when things have been shaken up, why merely try to return to the status quo? Why not strive for better? It's inspiring brainstorming in that type of atmosphere where everyone is driven by the same objective. Drawing from that energy, Sebastian rode his cockroach-like resilience into his next journey. I met this guy called Horacio. I was uh, 15 to 16 years old. Mm. And we get along. We really, we work a lot on social projects when we were in high school. And then was when we worked together and like building houses for slums and, and all that. And then Sunday in 2010, he randomly called me. I know you, I know you are like a, your work ethic and you as a person. And I'm starting this new thing. I was invited as well. Uh, you know, someone like you is, the man, is, is needed to this type of project. And it was a startup Chile in the early days. And he called me like midday and 4 p.m. I was in his office and I was working first time Chile. Startup Chile had that globalization, ambition, social component mixed all together that it was super attracting, super, super attracting. You were part of something new. Um, it was a government program, so you you thought that you were doing impact for your country as well. So I, I accepted a pay a pay cut, hmm. about thirty to forty percent of my pay cut. Oh wow! Just because of those elements. Two things were very, I'll say, impactful, and they got the attention of all over the world. Right. The first one is that it was the first startup visa in the world. So basically, it was a small country that was opening in the borders and building legally a way for entrepreneurs to work in another country. And the second, the volume. So 300 companies per year was the amount that was designed by, by this program. And the, the reason behind that is like they wanted to change the culture really fast. Yeah. Realize that we're 20 years behind. So how do we do that? It's a cultural chalk. You need to create a cultural chalk. And that cultural talk was bringing as many people as you can from more developed innovation ecosystems to Chile, mix them with the locals, and then you can build a new generation of entrepreneurs. And we managed 300 people. It was so crazy. There's no metric that can fully measure a culture shift, but you know it when you see it. the whole energy and attitude of a community will change as they learn how good it feels to strive for more. They will chase that feeling of their own volition. And that's exactly what happened under Sebastian's watch. Confucius once said, The man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away small stones. Startup Chile gave a select few the chance to do exactly that, to move the mountains of their choice, one stone at a time. And soon, Chile's social landscape began to look quite different. Through Startup Chile, Sebastian cultivated a strong community, one that enabled Chile to form deeper connections, both locally and globally. The, the whole idea of giving money to foreigners so they can relocate to, to Chile for, for a specific mm. period of time, and is the government that is doing that 
it created a huge, you know, buzz into the population of Chile, no? Because it's like you're, it's your, it's your funds. Like, why this government is doing, is giving money to foreigners to come here? What is all of this startup scene thing? Nobody was talking about the startups or ecosystem or anything. Globally, for example, I think the most the most interesting part is that when we work with other governments, they realize that a startup Chile made a government look cooler. Right. So it's like first time that you're seeing a country, a government, doing something really cool. Like it looks good. So at 2014, the program was so successful. Like in a year in Startup Chile, we had 360-something articles of important media outlets in the really? world. Uh, one a day. So at that time, it was so popular that many countries wanted to do something similar. Mm. I was traveling around most of the time to different countries to see and realize if these countries could do it. And everyone wanted to do something, you know. Being able to travel around add value and receive knowledge about that specific city or country it was just I mean it was a dream come true when I was when I was doing that that would say consultancy to these other countries none of the countries wanted to take the risk they all wanted to be named startup Brazil or startup whatever but none of them wanted to do the work and more importantly none of them wanted to risk themselves mm. into putting money where it needs to go. Then the government of Puerto Rico reach out and says, hey, we want you to, to fly down uh, because we're thinking about doing something like this. I came here and it was love at first sight. I loved Puerto Rico. It was, it was just great. So then I sit down with them and they said, you know, like, we want to do this. We want to, we have been in, in financial stress for the last 20 years and we are not seeing many alternatives, no? Like people were not investing in their bonds anymore. So first thing was to understand the context that I was dealing with. So first thing that we realized is, okay, we need a smaller cohorts and in, and in small country. So it, it didn't matter much. I thought that if we reached to 80, 80 companies per year, For me, it would be like a walk in the park, and for Puerto Rico, it would be like mass. Second, companies in Startup Chile were like from idea stage to later. Uh, so here, I wanted to narrow it down a little bit and going after the companies that were selling already. So because you, you decrease a little bit yeah. the chance of failure. And the other thing was metric driven, like we are on top of you for you to achieve your sales goals and your fundraising goals. What I wanted to prove is more like, I am not afraid that if we're getting money from the government and we're using it, I'm not afraid to show how we're using it. It was challenging to convince people on the potential of the island, on how attractive this was. I remember having a phone call with a Wall Street Journal journalist as soon as we launched the program because I thought it was going to be easy. I was having 360 articles a year. Yeah. For me, it was going to TechCrunch just calling a journalist and just saying, Mira, we're releasing this. And it was so excited and hot that they were always publishing. And I remember calling this uh, Wall Street Journal, Journal journalist that I knew from Startup Chile. 
And it was so, fr it was a frustrating call. It was like less than 15 minutes. And she, she was very, very negative about Puerto Rico. So it's like, why? Why Puerto Rico? Why are we going to do that? I remember the specific words, but it's like, I'm not going to say anything positive unless there is metrics and numbers and startups to, to back it up. And I remember that and it struck me as like, okay, a challenge. If we've learned one thing about Sebastian from his journey, it's that doubt from others pushes him to double down on his efforts to prove them wrong. The core mission was the same in Puerto Rico as it was in Chile. But the island's financial crisis posed an extra but highly welcome challenge to Sebastian. They needed to save the territory from financial collapse. And the only way to do that was to rebuild the culture. Most people tend to stick to what works. But Sebastian knew that in situations like this, one size does not fit all. So he adapted what he worked on in Chile to Puerto Rico's unique nuances, taking charge of the community and closely overseeing the startup's processes. Not only was Sebastian willing to learn the lay of the land, he was fascinated by it. And that was what helped him create lasting change where others saw no hope. There were two hurricanes right in a week, week apart, mm -hmm. Irma and Maria. Um, so in my case, it was it was way different from the earthquake because I was in Chile mm -hmm. when the Irma hit. Mm -hmm. So I was a flight from that day, and Irma hit, and my flight was canceled. Due to extreme weather conditions, this airport has closed until tomorrow morning. Will all passengers on SAS flight one zero? So we stay there, watch the news. And then Maria hit. Y por supuesto, nuestro corazón está apretado por el otro desastre natural que es el huracán Maria. I came to Puerto Rico two days after in the first flight that flight from Chile to Puerto Rico by myself. I remember getting getting here at night. I I got here like 9 p.m. Uh, on a Sunday, mm. and first thing in the morning, 9 a.m. I went to my car. No gas. They were super extremely hard to find gas. I said, okay, whatever. I'm going to take my bike. Went out. I remember going to the convention center from my apartment, which is probably uh, half an hour biking. I have never been in a war, but I think it's close to what it is. Devastation everywhere. And that was important from from the earthquake in Chile comparisons, right? Because in Chile, was, it was damaged, but some places not. Here was entirely damaged. I remember to, you know, going at the end of this, of this trip and just realizing that we needed to do something, we needed to do something fast. The first thing that we did, it was going into the basic needs. The main discussion was about how do we take care of locals, right? It was hard to find food. It was hard to, you know, like it was, you need to go in lines in supermarkets. And you couldn't find fresh things. Uh, it was becoming unsafe. It was emotional stress that our team was not a part of that. 
they were they were experiencing that that stuff as well we did a lot of events physical events uh, all over the island you no know? and i realized that there was a, there was a driving force that we sh- we should support almost half of the projects of those 300 projects that applied to 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 parallel and to pre-18 which was the name that we put on the program um were related to needs that were specific from the hurricane and going further specific to Puerto Rico no? today among other things that's what I'm passionate today it's like i believe you take the fundamental sectors that have been challenged are almost every time a huge opportunity mm. no and i think those between problem and opportunities and that intersections are the entrepreneurs and i think the island could be a great lab yeah to all of those solutions the devastation that sebastian saw in puerto rico was the result of just one battle within a far greater war hurricane maria had brought an already shaky economic infrastructure to the brink of complete collapse. But Sebastian had not only lived through a natural disaster, he'd actually helped the community recover from one. He knew that restoration took unity and most of all, empathy. People hit by Hurricane Maria lost their homes, their loved ones, their livelihood. They needed to regain the sense of safety and security that had been taken away from them. But what Sebastian came to realize was that the solution was an external but internal. Sebastian, drawing from his experience in Chile, made it clear to those communities. They needed to learn to identify and develop their own talent. Homegrown talent was likely key for Puerto Rico to make up ground in the war it had waged against its own economy and social infrastructure. We're in the middle of COVID. You've been through two disasters and I feel like this is like the third biggest global investor. Yeah. Um how are you and how is Parallel 18 adapting to this new normal? The decisions that we made when COVID hit were pretty similar to the hurricane. We knew it already. We knew it by heart. So we got together, did an assessment, you know, communicate with all the startups who were good, put together a plan and executed the plan. Yeah. And and basically it was two things. First, our international program was affected, uh, so we turned we turned to local, but we went virtual in all of our educational uh, components. So, so I believe that's the that's the, the the main change. I think what's really cool about what's happening today is that you have an immense amount of experts that are available to give back, and that they know that there's. There's a wall that opened for them and for entrepreneurs as well. So that's been very refreshing to see that there's people that is willing to give half an hour an hour of their time. The COVID-19 opened a window of opportunity to do things differently. I think for example in in our case in the case of incubators and accelerators or the market which is entrepreneurs are evolving rapidly. They today are global they move around they don't need to stick in a place and whatever uh, they build technologies whenever and so the needs are different mm-hmm. and the ways that are seeing are different so i think this what we're offering needs to change a little bit as well even though that we come back to what it was 
I find it inspiring that while many view COVID as an inhibitor, Sebastian focuses on the silver linings, the slivers of opportunities. He's experienced moments of great clarity when he steps back from the hustle to take in the bigger picture, such as after the 2010 earthquake. COVID has given him another opportunity to do just that. And I think he's capitalized on that opportunity. This pandemic has shown us the importance of global health and how communities across the world can affect each other. COVID-19 has ruthlessly ripped through this world. People have lost their lifestyles, their livelihoods, and even their lives. It's an immeasurable tragedy. But even in the midst of this darkness, there's still a small light. COVID has brought drastic change, and I think we can learn from Sebastian on how to approach this change, this challenge. Challenge forces him to innovate. It forces him to adapt and make improvements that he otherwise wouldn't have made. So from this perspective, he gives us some advice. In the time of this uncertainty and of COVID, of like disaster, like what advice would you give for someone trying to navigate that? I would say, you know, the first the first thing that we talk to them is that I saw, you know, like there's so many opportunities, like everyone says. In the health space and in the, you know, and logistics and e-commerce and look how everything is booming. And I quickly realized that they're not dumb. They know that the opportunity is out there and they need to take them. Yeah. But I think way more important than that is like understanding how are you doing, right? It's how you, your emotions are doing and how is your people doing and how's your family doing. Because if those things are not covered, it's very hard to find and understand those opportunities. No? I think it's important to do that personal assessment on where I am and how I am and then take those opportunities that you're seeing out there and don't wait to take those opportunities because there's many incentives and yeah. many ideas out there. So. I believe that a key takeaway from our conversation with Sebastian is a fresh perspective on the meaning of the word adaption. Adaption doesn't just mean conforming to your circumstances, but instead learning to see problems as opportunities for growth. Sebastian takes this one step further by looking at things holistically. He isn't solely focused on the problems he felt needed to be solved, but he's also focused on the pursuit of goals that have impact, on pursuits that align with humanity. He asks himself a few questions. How would each problem affect the world if left unchecked? And how would each of these challenges affect his life, his headspace, his friends, his family, his community? Despite the gravity of these questions, Sebastian has never let such an assessment slow him down. He's never turned away from something because others told him he couldn't or shouldn't do it. Sebastian is someone who has learned to capitalize on opportunity. And that is a trait we should all strengthen. Because often we regret the easy choices, the choices that don't take a lot of agency. So next time you see something that just doesn't feel right, don't ignore it. Sprint towards it. Take a close look. And if it's within your control, decide to put in the work and do whatever it takes to fix it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. 
Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing lead is Adrian Tapia, with the support from Joseph Cho, Eli Lauren, Matt Fernandez, Demir Gold, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, and Shannon O'Halloran. Our script writing team lead is Joyce Mock, with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lin, Gemma Brandwolf, Elizabeth Bowen, and Sharon Chen. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lin, with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lee, Alice Yao, Ankita Numbiar, and Jamil Swayze. Our design and social media team lead is Annie Liu, with support from Phoebe Sajor, Tiffany Dang, Rick Liu, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Ling Hu, and James Barton. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.